What riches we have sung, what glories we have expressed. I invite you to Romans 1. I'd like to just read the introduction to this letter, the prescript, the first words of the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome. Romans chapter 1. Romans 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father, as we come to this grand book, we pray that you would deepen and strengthen this church through our endeavors in the text of Scripture. I pray that you would answer the prayers that our Paul Purdue has offered here this morning, that you would hear the cry of his heart in our behalf and our prayers as they've ascended to you, that you would sanctify us and bring about all that you desire for the glory of your name through the series that we enter into here. We pray that you would be glorified, that Christ would be seen, that all that you intend by your Holy Spirit to accomplish in this church will be accomplished for the glory of His name. We pray in behalf of those who know not Christ, and God, what a joy it would be to us to see people come to embrace the gospel and trust Him as Savior. All that you are pleased to do among us, we anticipate, we thank you for it ahead of time. We don't know how long you will give us life or strength or what you will do in the days ahead, but as we give ourselves to this endeavor as a church, we pray your blessing upon this time together and all the time that you give us in the days ahead. We come into this gathering with trial, with difficulty, with sin. We come into it as well armed with the promises of your word, and on those promises we stand. We have life in your name. And I pray that we would rejoice and celebrate that life together. And I pray that by the Spirit of God you will accomplish what human weakness and the few words that can be put together here will accomplish. You can do much. And we appeal to you to do so. For the glory of your name, through Christ we pray. Amen. Your eternal salvation depends upon a piece of news. One day we will stand before God, and on that day we will be received into into His presence or forever banished 
from His presence. Now, I wonder as we think about that very serious reality, how are you preparing? On what are you depending as you anticipate that day of standing before the Lord? People naturally turn to some sort of plan when they consider such a meeting. In one way or another, one religious scheme or another, a plan they believe will qualify them for eternal life in God's presence. So it is a selfward focus upon what I do or what I make myself to be. Others believe it is enough just to be. God would never reject anyone because He loves everyone, accepts everyone just as they are. There are no conditions. God is too big for that, some say. But what is God's glorious revelation to us in the book of Romans? What is it? My standing with God rests on a piece of news. It rests on a message that has been revealed to us. This means that my salvation comes from outside of me. It means my salvation is based on what has already happened and on what someone else has done. It is news. It is good news. And it is by trusting this message that we secure God's eternal favor. What exactly is this news? Well, the pinnacle development of this salvation message is found in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Roman believers. Of no other book in the Bible could I say this more emphatically, the eternal salvation of your soul depends upon this message, the message in this book. May God grant to us as a church the capacity to grasp the meaning of this message, this good news, as we consider the book that has undoubtedly brought more people to saving faith in Christ than any other individual book of Scripture. The Apostle summarizes the good news that brings salvation in the opening verses that we have read here this morning. We'll return to them in a moment and work over them fairly carefully, but first, let me set the book in its historical context. Paul wrote this letter probably from, almost certainly from Corinth uh, in what is today Greece and did so as he awaited passage across the Aegean and the Mediterranean seas to Jerusalem. His plan was to bring a sizable gift that had been collected from the Gentile churches of Greece to the impoverished saints in Jerusalem. Paul hopes that this gift will unite the church across the Gentile Jewish divide. There are Jewish believers in Christ who know that He is their Messiah. There are Gentile believers in churches that have sprung up through the known world. And there were many difficulties theologically and culturally that divided these two camps, so to speak. He wants to bring them together and to do so in a very tangible way by showing the Gentiles' love for the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, bringing this great gift to aid them in their trial. Paul writes to the Romans. He's heading east on this trip and there to the west. But he asks them as he makes this journey, will you pray for me? Pray for me that my journey will be successful and that this gift will be a blessing 
to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, pray as well, I know I'm going to face hostile forces. Pray that I'll be delivered from those hostile forces in Jerusalem and I have plans past there. What I would like to do is to come back westward to visit you in Rome and for you to become a platform, a stage, a base of operation from which I could reach even further west with the gospel to Spain. So he's preparing them to give, to supply for him on this westward mission that he anticipates. He has preached the gospel now for some 25 years. And he's had time to work over his curriculum, so to speak. I think this book is much more than that. It's written to the Romans in their need and in his desire for them to help him. It's also written knowing that the Jewish Gentile struggles are very much being presented there in the Roman church as well. And he wants to help them through that. They're facing certain struggles that are unique to their situation. And he writes this book for a lot of different reasons. I don't think there's one purpose, one theme, but certainly to proclaim the good news to them. So in the meantime, realizing that this Jewish-Gentile divide has troubled the infant churches and is also challenging the church at Rome, probably in a number of house churches, Paul pens the fullest explanation of the good news that we have in Scripture. So he is about to sail east, and as he does, this letter sails west, travels west. In a lengthy greeting, he opens the letter by sketching out some of the major themes of the book. He starts by explaining that his life is devoted to the proclamation of the good news of God's saving purposes because of God's electing purpose upon him as an apostle. So let's consider first verse 1, the author, Paul, set apart for the gospel. Paul is servant of Christ Jesus, he begins. We see Paul's master here, first of all. He is a servant of Christ Jesus. Slavery conjures up in our Western minds images of kidnapping and inhumane treatment. Believe me, such horrors were prevalent in the ancient world as well. But in Paul's day, we need to add to that that slavery had a much broader application than it does in our minds and in our historical experience. Many slaves were entrusted with great responsibility by masters whose every advantage was to treat their slaves very well. Slaves could take great pride in their status. It all depended on who was your master. Slaves could take great pride in their work depending on the level of responsibility that was placed upon them. And so you had philosophers and doctors and lecturers, teachers that were all slaves in that world. And that, I think, is how Paul uses the word here. Slaves taking great pride because of who their master is and what the responsibility here is. In this vein, Paul writes here and rejoices to say that Jesus Christ is my master. It is my high honor to fulfill the will of the risen Christ in this waking world. I am a servant of Christ Jesus. We see... Paul's master, and then secondly, Paul's office. I'm called to be an apostle. Jesus commissioned Paul to serve as his authorized delegate or envoy or messenger or ambassador. 
He had this high calling of going into this world and representing Jesus. Paul is no, we see here, he's no self-appointed, self-promoting rabbi. His authority comes not from pedigree, from training, from gifts, inheritance, or he certainly didn't purchase the office and the opportunity. Paul has been chosen and set apart by Christ for this specific task, but he's been chosen by Christ. His office. Thirdly, his mission. It is here in verse 1 to be set apart for the gospel of God. To serve the cause of the gospel. To serve the good news. What is that good news? Paul will turn to that next. But notice first that it is the good news of God. That is, it is good news that finds its source in God. It comes from Him. It's God's gift to His people. So we have here the author, Paul, a servant called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, set apart to take this good news to the nations. How does that hit you? How does it hit you that God has called Paul to go into a lost, dying, troubled, hostile world and to proclaim Jesus crucified and risen? We might hit us and say that that poor guy I'm really glad someone's called to that difficult task of proclaiming the good news. I said that here recently in one of the below zero days. There was a sewer line under the street that broke. And there were some guys going down into that at that mess in below zero temperatures all bundled up. And I said, thank God somebody can do that. And that it's not me. That poor, those poor guys as they're going down into that hole. Do we think of that? Do you think of that? When it comes to proclaiming the gospel, thank God, God has chosen missionaries for that tough task. The truth of the matter is that the greatest human privilege that anyone can have is to speak for Christ. That's the greatest privilege that you as a child of God have. It's the highest calling to say that He is my Master and that I go into this world and I represent Him as an ambassador to proclaim the truth of the Gospel. We have no higher calling. You have no higher calling. It's not the poor missionary who has to do that tough task. It is our high calling to take the message of Jesus and His saving grace and to speak it. To talk to people about it. To represent Him as an ambassador. This is the highest of callings. This servant, this apostle set apart for the gospel. We see the central message now described in verses 2 through 6 the good news about jesus christ so the author here paul the servant set apart for the gospel and now what is it what is the central message of this gospel it's just sketched out here for us in verses 2 through 6 let's take them in turn first of all the content is given to us in verses 2 through 4 verse 2 which he that is the gospel of god which he god promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures What's the distance between Old Testament and New Testament? It's about 400 years. What's the distance between the first book in the Old Testament and the last book in the New? Somewhere in the 1500 year range from the time they were written. 
not what they're talking about, but the history they're talking about, but the time they were written, about 1,500 years. That's quite a stretch. The entire Bible across these stretches of time is a single synchronized story which proves that it's God's story. God revealed future developments to His prophets who wrote them down often hundreds of years before they were fulfilled. One prophet after another revealing God's truth through the ages inspired by the Holy Spirit, the pinnacle of which all of these promises pointed to was this. Verse 3, concerning His Son. So the prophets through the ages writing concerning His Son, verse 3, who was descended from David according to the flesh. The good news is news about Jesus. Jesus is the good news that saves. We think of 2 Samuel chapter 7 in the Davidic covenant and God's Messiah would be, was promised to be an offspring of David. David's greater son, Jesus is born according to the flesh. That is, in humanity. He is a child of David, born a son of David, born in David's city in fulfillment of prophecy. So again, the point is that the news that saves is the news about a person. What we are representing is not something we're selling. It's not simply a plan But what we represent as the ambassadors of Christ is a person. And we introduce people to that person who was born in the flesh as a child of David. Jesus of Nazareth, the King David's greater son of the tribe of Judah. Verse 4, that's his humanity. Verse 4, and he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of Holiness by His resurrection from the dead, that is, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the essence, the central message of the Gospel, is Christ. Now let's consider this, verse 4. He was declared to be the Son of God in power. Verse 3 points to the true humanity of Jesus, literally, really, a Son of David. Verse 4 points to His genuine deity. Notice that verse 4 does not say that Jesus became the Son of God. How do you answer that question? When did Jesus become the Son of God? When did He become the Son of God? Now the answer is never. Or the answer is eternally generated as the Son of God. There was never a moment when Jesus was not the second person of the triune God, the eternal Son. Never. So it's not saying here that He was declared to be the Son of God, that He, that, that it's, it's not saying He became the Son of God. But He was declared to be, He was seen to be the Son of God in power. And the in power is the idea that we need to emphasize here. Jesus declared to be God's Son in power when He rose from the dead. So Paul will develop the theme of Jesus' death and resurrection in much greater detail as the book unfolds. But here he sounds the two fundamental aspects of the good news. It is Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. The point here is that when Jesus rose from the dead, He was, according to the witness of the Holy Spirit, according to the witness of the Holy Spirit, revealed to be the Son of God in power. So, if we read this rightly, Paul has 
two eras in mind here. The era of Jesus' humiliation when He took on flesh and died. Secondly, the era of exaltation when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven's throne as Lord and Savior. The transition from one era to the next is what? The bridge from the one humiliation to exaltation is what? It's resurrection. It's the resurrection of Christ that then declares through the Spirit of God that He is the exalted Lord. Not that He became God but that He was seen as God in all of His power and authority and glory. That is the essence, the center of the Gospel that Paul will develop here. We look then at the conquest of the Gospel, verse 5. This Gospel is meant to do something. What's it meant to do? Verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among the nations. Through whom, that is through this risen, reigning Son of God, the Messiah, we have received, that Paul, the apostles, have received grace and apostleship. It's grace, it's pure grace that we have been chosen to represent Christ, and we are His apostles, His true representatives. And what is the goal of this? To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name. To bring about the obedience of faith seems to mean that people will obey the gospel they will respond to christ they will be saved and certainly that obedience leads to further obedience there's the obedience of receiving the gospel and there is the obedience of living in obedience to it for the sake of his name and this is all everything isn't it the salvation of our souls through christ is not first and foremost about us It is first and foremost about God's glorious name. We do not gather here today because it is convenient. We don't gather here today because we profit from it as individuals. And I hope we do that. But we gather here today as those Jesus has redeemed for the glory of His name. We gather here as His people. We gather on the Lord's day to exalt in Him and to say our lives are about Him and what He's done. We gather in His name to magnify the splendor of His name. And Paul includes them in this, the Romans, and certainly includes us in it through the Spirit. Verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. What beautiful words. Called. God speaks and we come and we're called to be what? to be His people, to belong to Jesus Christ. Counted among the Gentiles that have received Christ's message are these Roman believers. And again, we see that relationship is at the heart of the Gospel, verse 6, that you would belong to Jesus Christ, that you would be His servant, His ambassador, the one that He has called to be His child, child of God. We find the recipients in verse 7 and much more will come out about them in the last chapters of the book of Romans. But we see these recipients as God-blessed believers. Verse 7, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Loved by God. This is the wonder of the good news. We don't earn God's favor. He does not receive us because we are righteous 
The good news is that while we were yet sinners and objects of God's just wrath, that God chose to love us. His unearned, gracious love is evidenced in the fact that the Romans were called to be saints. That is, they were separated from their natural identity with this world. Their natural identity in Adam. In that fallen world, God choosing them and setting them apart as His holy people. These people are Mine. I have come to own them through Christ. You have the privilege, writes Paul, to be owned by Jesus. To belong to Him. He is the Lord. He is the Master. I too with you am His servant. How privileged we are. We are set apart as God's chosen people, distinguished as God's gracious dealings with the nation of Israel for centuries now comes down upon these Roman believers. I mean, think about it, that you are holy people. You are set-apart people. This is the place that Israel occupied from the time of God's calling of Abraham. But Paul, the apostle, the Jewish apostle, to the Gentiles, writes to these Gentiles and says, you are the set-apart ones. You are the holy ones. You are the people of God through Christ. Now, rather than being judged by God as their sins deserve, Paul can bless them with these words, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Someday you'll stand before the Lord. Think of the spirit of this. As we stand before the Lord in Christ, here's the spirit. Every word of this blessing is so significant. We stand in grace. Grace to you. God's electing favor. It's all about Him. It's all about what He has done. Peace. A right standing with God through the forgiveness of sin that Christ earned. God our Father. Adoption. Inheritance. Belonging to Him. And Lord our Master whose will is supreme to all other interests and all other considerations. What beauty is there that Christ has purchased for us, that we have received as an inheritance of faith in Him. This is pure grace. And it's the very heart of the good news that through the sacrifice of Jesus we become God's children freed to live as Christ's slaves. Pure grace. Well, these seven verses declare the author, the recipients of the letter. They also sketch out the central message of Romans, which is the good news about Jesus Christ, how sinners can be made righteous, stand in fellowship with God as their Father, Christ as their Lord, and the Holy Spirit as their transforming presence. There is no way on earth as we sketch out, and, or as we go further past this sketch and we determine what God teaches us in this book, no way that we grasp it all. We will continue to come back to learn about His transforming purposes. But already at this earliest stage, the book has steered us clear of so much that we find natural. And I don't think we've read these verses very carefully unless we can stop here and say, I get that. What has been said here in just this introductory way steers us in a direction that is counter to everything we are by nature. Do we grasp it? Do we see it? Let's work it out for a few moments. 
at this early stage, it steers us clear of the poison of false ways and means of relating to God before whom we will all stand to give account someday. The spotlight Paul positions on the good news points us away from a life of self-promotion. In Adam, we are naturally bent to spotlight our achievements, to seek honor from others, to feel good about ourselves, to find our identity in the glory of our own names, and to try to wring out praise from others. Locating our salvation outside of ourselves points us away from this self-glory. The self-glory that is so ingrained into who we are in Adam. And every one of you sitting there and me as I'm standing here, every one of us has this in us. This self-promoting self-glory as the orientation of our lives in Adam But locating our salvation outside of ourselves points us away from all of that. The good news is not who I am. The good news is not what I have achieved. The good news is not how others see me. The good news is Jesus Christ. That's it. It's Him. This other orientation is transformational. It's who He is, what He has done, period. This good news will, in fact, as the book unfolds, strip us of all pride and self-glory. It will utterly strip us naked. It will show us the depravity that clings to our flesh in our relationship with Adam. It will show us the utter sinfulness of sin. It will show us the sinfulness of my sin. It will turn the spotlight off of what others have done and to see that it's deep within me that the problem lies. And by pointing us in our sin to Christ, it will point us to seek our identity in Him and point us to glory in Him. I mean this. Those aren't words on a page. I mean it. To glory in Him. To have an orientation of life that says, Jesus' glory is what matters to me. My identity is bound up in His glory and exaltation. That's transformation. This Gospel will point us to a new era and a new identity that points to the glories of Christ in us who is our hope and our glory. If that's all one, away from the self-promoting self-identity, secondly, this emphasis on good news points us away from the natural Adamic emphasis on seeking joy in my circumstances and getting my way. Just think of how it points us so differently. It rescues us from the old era belief that unless things go as I want them to go, happiness is lost and life stinks. The good news points us to the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ to the eternal plan of God, and to His love for us in a fallen world from which we are being delivered. 
We're being rescued from ourselves. We're being rescued from our circumstances. We're being rescued from the curse all day long by the indwelling Spirit. This is good news. And it is, at the end of the day, an identity and a history changer for God's chosen people who put their faith in this message. So, let me draw out, in closing, four touch points. Four touch points of truth that emerge from these verses and will be developed in the book in greater detail to come. But let these truths just pour over you, knowing that your eternal destiny is rooted in this message. In these truths, everything hangs, hinges upon these truths. Everything. Let them pour over you like a cleansing wave of grace. Grasp them, remember them, they're your life. Here it is, number one. The good news of salvation that Jesus purchased with His death and resurrection is God's initiative. God initiates it. It is a plan He's been working through the ages. It's a plan that is generated by His love. It requires His calling. It is, a, it is dependent upon His grace. This good news is not found in me. It, comes, it doesn't come from me. I must look upward to receive it, not inward to achieve it. It's God's initiative. Secondly, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ is just that. It's news. It's not a plan by which I reform myself. It's not a scale on which my good deeds and bad deeds are weighed. It is not a call to do better than I've done before. A call to self-improvement, to turn over a new leaf. It is, do you believe it? It is news. News about something that's already happened. Something I must trust and believe and obey, namely the death and resurrection of Jesus and all the meaning that God has revealed about those events. It's God's initiative. It's news. Thirdly, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ centers upon His person and work. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Jesus is fully man the descendant of David. Jesus is the crucified and risen Lord of all. He is the source of grace and transforming power for sinners. In His resurrection, He is now the very power of God. Declared to be, in His resurrection, the King of kings and Lord of lords forever. Number four, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ is a message that I must believe in obedience to God and for the glory of His name. Obedience to God for the glory of His name. That's what it's about. That's the message. This is not news I can ignore. The good news assumes bad news. And the bad news is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The bad news is that the wages of sin is death. It's desperately bad news. Desperately bad for those who are in Adam. The good news is that Jesus will extend grace to those who obey Him. Obey Him by putting their trust in His provision of salvation. 
obey Him by repenting of their sin and embracing this message of what Christ has done. One day, you will stand before the sovereign God and the judge of all flesh. Are you prepared? Let me ask the question this way. Are you preparing? Does your life actively, moment by moment, day by day, prepare you to stand in God's presence? The good news is that fitted with the righteousness that Jesus purchased for His people, standing before God in eternity will be the most glorious, the most glorious moment of your eternal life to that point in time. It will be a moment, I don't know, solemn joy, but it will be a moment of rejoicing before the judge who is perfect and holy and the reason is Jesus. Are you preparing? The reason is not going to be because of who you are. It's not going to be because what you've accomplished or the circumstances that have fallen out your way in life. That's not how we stand before God and live to tell about it. It will be because you have trusted a message. You have put your hope and your confidence in news. Because in simple faith, you have repented of your sin, trusted in the death of Jesus to pay the full payment of your sin, trusted in His resurrection power over death, and you have embraced Him as your Lord and Savior. Everything has been recalibrated to the new era, to the new identity in the new Adam, to a standing in Christ before the Father that is a source of utter and everlasting joy. Not terror, as it ought to be, and as it will be if you remain in Adam. But this message has come to all of us and to those separated from Christ, to those who don't see the joy of being the servant of Jesus Christ, for those who don't understand this message yet. It's good news. I want to tell you, with great certainty, as you work through this book, it's going to be bad news about you. This is not a book that is going to be put together for the advancement of our self-esteem. It's not going to be a book that's going to prove to be put together so that you feel good about yourself and come to trust in yourself or learn how you can make some improvements and be better. It's a book that's going to be very bad news if you depend on yourself. It is going to tell us the truth. You are fallen in sin and the just object of God's judgment and condemnation. But if you've not understood what Jesus has done to give you new life in Him and to rescue you from sin, this book leads you there. And it's good news. For those of us who have trusted that message of salvation in Jesus, cling to this message. It is your eternal life. Work even as a believer against that 
constant temptation to make it all about me, to make it all about what I'm doing, to make it about my achievement, to make it about the circumstances in life going well, and I might even pray that way. I so want life to go the way I want it to go that I make it a matter of prayer to God for God to get my life in order and bless it. Steer away from all of that, and I encourage you as a believer in Christ, come to this today, see Jesus Christ. See Him. See your identity in Him. And know this is your hope, that I know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. In that I find my whole hope, my whole identity, and a confidence that on that day when I stand before the Father, the whole thing is going to be about the Son. I know Him. On His authority, I come into Your presence. And from that point forward through eternity, the celebration, the celebration will start forever. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that You would aid us to synchronize our lives with this message to allow it to transform the way we look at ourselves, the way we see our world, the way we relate to You. We thank You for the channel that has already been carved through these first verses. And I pray that as that channel continues to be dug out and point us to You and to Your glories, that it will flow with life-sustaining strength to draw us into Your presence and to allow us to rejoice in our relationship with You through Christ. For those who know not Jesus, where the Spirit of God has not opened their eyes to see and transform them by Your power, we pray, we ask that You would do the work that You alone can do and bring them to Christ today. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.